0: Hey, what's up? It's Gustavo Ariano. This is the last show before our Thanksgiving break, so time to talk turkey, but not me. I'm more of a ham guy. Put some salsa de chile de arbol, mm, that's good stuff. So I'm handing off today's episode to LA Times Washington DC reporter, Erin Logan. She interviewed her favorite food personality, one that just might surprise y'all. Enjoy. It was April, 2020,
1: and I was in a deep depression. I didn't yet have my dog, and my only interaction with other people was when I went to the grocery store or went hiking with my friend Debbie. We were walking on a trail just outside Washington when Debbie told me about this turmeric rice recipe created by a chef named Allison Roman. My friend was really hyping this rice up, which was interesting because I had never heard of this chef. So I went online and I looked her up.
0: Hello, I'm Allison Roman. I'm here today to talk to you about my favorite thing in the world. I am going to be making meatballs. I feel like we're really doing it. Whatever, it's real.
1: I was struck by a woman who wore red lipstick and red nail polish as she cooked. Her videos made me laugh, which was a rarity in those days.
0: And then the next day, um, sort of out of nowhere, I got dumped.
1: Like and subscribe. Oh. Then I saw Allison make her famous shallot pasta. It had only three key ingredients, shallots, tomato paste, and anchovies. I said to myself, I can do that. So the next Saturday, I went to Trader Joe's. I got shallots, and I went home to make the recipe. After I ate it, I texted three friends. I'm officially an Allison Roman stan. But then, a few weeks later, Allison got into hot water over statements she made about two other internet personalities for apparently selling out. The internet flew into a rage. Roman, a white woman, appeared to be attacking two women of color. There were accusations of white privilege and of cultural appropriation in her recipes. She even lost her New York Times food column. As a black woman, I was taken aback. Should I stop cooking her shallot pasta? Was I being a bad ally? In what ways are we allowed to engage with people who have been accused of problematic behavior? I've had these thoughts for over a year even as Allison launched her newsletter on Substack and built up her own independent YouTube channel. And now I finally get to sit down with Allison herself. Hi, Allison. Welcome. Hi, Erin. Thank you for having me. So I watched your Thanksgiving special...
0: Thank you so much. We had fun doing it. I I hope that that comes through and not just like the stress
1: of it. But it was actually very, very fun. What was like your most favorite thing that you cooked for it?
0: Hmm. I mean, for me, Thanksgiving is like less about the individual dishes and more about them, how they eat together. But I will say like stuffing, obviously. I feel like it is. Why? It's like a thing that you only eat once a year. And so when you have it, it feels more special. Whereas like, you know, vegetables, turkey, which is like a big chicken and people eat turkey sandwiches all the time or like, I don't know, the other things are sort of like stuff that are familiar to you, things that you have throughout the year. But stuffing is such a specific and unique thing that literally only happens then that I feel maybe I feel more attached to it that way. And I feel like if if I had stuffing year round, maybe I wouldn't I would feel differently.
1: What is your like favorite Thanksgiving recipe? that you've ever created of all time?
0: Mm. Is it okay to say stuffing again? No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um. I don't know. Honestly, I feel like I'm sure it had been done before, but just the turkey on a sheet pan to me felt like, oh, thank God. Like I don't have to own a roasting pan or I don't have to worry about the juices spilling over or like this, that, and the other. And to me, I feel like that empowered a lot of people to make turkey for the first time or sort of trust themselves without being like, do I have to spatchcock it? Do I have to own a roasting pan? Do I have to smoke it? Do I, you know, it's kind of like, no, you can kind of treat it like a big chicken and it'll still be delicious and and easy for you to do. I was proud of that because I felt like I'd seen more people doing, you know, a turkey that way. Everything sort of revolves around the turkey, even though it's notoriously everybody's least favorite thing. I prefer my bird to be simple and perfect. And by perfect, I mean like juicy, delicious, golden, but also just like perfectly seasoned. I'll say it once, I'll say it again. If you've roasted a chicken, you can roast a turkey, and they don't have to be that different. It doesn't have to be so
1: scary. So you grew up in the San Fernando Valley, right? I did, 818. So, I mean, something I've noticed about LA uh, and California overall, I guess, is like the diversity of cultures and of cuisines and food. Did that influence you at all?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like growing up in a place where like you can have access to everything and that, you know, it's a part of your weekly diet was huge. There was no distance too far for my dad to drive to, like, take me for something excellent. And that could be tacos or pastrami sandwiches or French dip, because my dad grew up in California as well, in the Valley. And so he had these places that were special to him. And so none of it seemed like special occasion. It was just sort of how we ate. Mm -hmm. So why did you choose to move to New York? Um, You know, it wasn't an intentional decision. I... Was cooking and living in Los Angeles. I was 19, 20. And then when I was 21, I moved to San Francisco. And I lived there for almost four years. And I was going to open this bakery with a a former boss of mine. But we were waiting on permits and, you know, construction. And it was going to take a while. And so I was in between jobs. And I thought, okay, well, this is a perfect time, sort of like a gap year to live in New York for a few months just to see what it's like. Because I'm a California girl till I die. Like, why would I live anywhere else? It is the perfect state. I've lived in the North and the South. I've lived in Santa Cruz. Like, I love California. So I was like, well, this is just sort of like a thing that I'm doing for fun and ended up getting a job there, which was a part-time job. But within the first four weeks of me being there, offered me health insurance and a salary. And I was so broke that I was like, well, that's actually really appealing. And maybe I should stay in New York. Maybe this is for me, even, you know, for a year. And I'd say within the first three months, it was like very clear that I was just full on moving to New York. Um, I loved it. It was it was great. I loved the energy. It was so different than anything I had grown up with that I felt like really ready for a
1: change. So you left college to cook in kitchens.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I. Why?
0: Because I sort of knew that what I was going to do with my life was probably I was not going to find that in, in college, I guess, or in school. I had always been writing. I had always been like reading a ton and like found the school part of things where I was like, why am I learning about this? You know, to feel like a waste of my time, which I'm not saying it was. And I, I don't actually agree with my younger self to that degree. I I was probably a little hasty in that decision, but I was like, you know, I really want to cook. I really want to learn how to cook. I want to be working. I want to be doing something it made me feel very restless not to be like making something or active in my life. And I felt like my experience in college felt very passive. And I really craved an actionable lifestyle where I was like, I have a job, I have a skill, I'm doing something, I'm making something. And so I was going to enroll in culinary school, but I ended up getting a job at a restaurant. Well, it was a bakery at first because I was like, oh, I'm going to go to culinary school. Can I work here part time? And they're like, save your money. Don't go to culinary school work here for $7 an hour and see if you like it. And I was like, great. I was lucky enough to be able to do that and still pay rent. And, you know, I was overdrafting my bank account literally every week and I had no money for anything else. But when you work in a restaurant, you eat all your meals there. So I wasn't spending money on anything but rent. And so I sort of was like, okay, if I can make rent and have this job, then I would like to pursue this and see if this works out.
1: How did your parents feel about you, like, leaving college to, like, work for $7 an hour?
0: Oh, they absolutely hated it. It was, I mean, because they didn't give me any money. <laughs> it was I was not, like, in the position where I could just quit college and, like, get this cool job because I was being taken care of. I was not being taken care of because they were like, well, that's your choice. And, like, just know that, like, if you can support yourself, that's good on you. But, you know, we don't want this. We don't want you to leave school. They were... Confused, uh, disappointed, probably. I mean, at the time, I had no proof of concept. I had no idea if it would work or not. But I always said, you know, if it doesn't work out, I can always go back to school. And I and I believed that. I was like, you know, if I hate it, if I am bad at it, if I can't make a living, if I can't support myself, I will absolutely go back to school. And that seemed like always an option. And fortunately, I through a lot of trial and error, like figured out a way to make it work for myself. But I loved it. I was like, I really love this, and kind of knew almost immediately that it was what I wanted to do.
1: We'll be right back after this break. You know, I have heard that professional kitchens are like notoriously toxic and dominated by a lot of men. One, is that true? And two, what's it like working in an environment like that, especially when you're making such a low salary?
0: Yeah, I mean, the first kitchen I worked at was very small. It was nine people total. I think I was one of either two to three women on staff. So it wasn't like there were no women. I've worked in kitchens where I was the only woman. I was often the youngest person there. But I didn't have anything to compare it to. I sort of feel like also I started cooking at a time where like, That was sort of the fetish of, like, working in a kitchen to be screamed at. And we just sort of accepted that. But I never really experienced any of, like, the really bad stories that said, like, to me, what's really bad might be horrific to somebody now. And I think that, like, you just sort of accepted it as, like, a part of the job. I never experienced any explicit, like, harassment. I cried as much as anyone else. I feel like I was spoken to like everyone else, which isn't to say that was great, but it wasn't, I wasn't singled out. But yeah, like it was a lot of crying in the walk-in. Um, most of the time I if I was upset, it was because I felt like I wasn't doing a good job. Um, and I probably wasn't, I sucked when I started cooking. It was, I was not, I didn't get it. It was, it's a really tough rhythm to be in like working service in a restaurant.
1: Yeah, I mean, I um, worked in a kitchen for like a summer, like in Snellville, Georgia. (laughs) It's interesting hearing you say like, it's normal to get yelled at, essentially. And I guess for most professions, that is just not normal. And like, if I was getting yelled at on a daily basis, like I would literally quit. Like so many people have.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was like, you you have a shift that starts at three. But if you're not there by 12, you know, you're going to get ignore it all day because people don't think you're working hard enough. And if you call out sick, they're going to think you're lying. And if you mess something up, like you're going to get embarrassed in front of your whole team. Like, I mean, again, this is also 17 years ago. Like it's an entirely different world. I don't know. It's, it's so funny to reflect on like how things were back then because it is so radically different. And like, you're like, yeah, that was bad. (laughs) <laughs> like, objectively, no one should be treated like that in the workplace. But I think that was pretty understood among the cooks in the kitchen. Like, we were all like, wow, if this were a regular job, we would be able to just take the day off because we're sick. But because we work in a kitchen, it's like, you know, you're sort of pressured to show up and prioritize that job as like the most important thing in your life.
1: It's like crazy hearing you say that as we're like almost two years into a global pandemic. <laughs> Like, Girl, you have a virus. It's like you have a virus in your nostrils. Come to work. Put it in the food.
0: <laughs> yeah, we have made really beautiful strides, I think, in the way that we consider treating our, you know, workers in restaurants. We have a long way to go, I believe. But I, I think that, like at least the awareness of, like, if someone's not feeling well, they should. Or, like, even if they're not feeling well emotionally, like, that was certainly not an option. Like, you couldn't not show up to work because you were feeling anxious or depressed or some, you know, it's like somebody would have had to literally pass away for you to skip a shift. Like I can't, it's really crazy. There's like a joke among me and anyone I know that has worked in a restaurant. It's like the work ethic is unparalleled. And by unparalleled, we mean a little unhealthy.
1: Obviously, this is like, it kind of helped morph you into the person that you are now and like help create like a launchpad for your career. And it sounded like you loved the fast paced energy, not like the screaming, maybe. But why did you decide to leave that for food media?
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, at the time, there was no such thing as food media. It was just I went to work in a magazine. And I think it was because I had been in restaurants at that point for about six or seven years. And physically was not interested in continuing that lifestyle. It was hard, hard living and waking up at 10, 30, 11 every day to like go to work by two, stay out till two, do it the next day. Like it really took a toll physically and mentally. And I sort of started thinking like, well, what's my impact beyond making dinner for these people every night or cooking dessert for them every night? And I had really wanted to sort of explore like what was possible in other ways because there's like a sort of theater about working in a restaurant right like you you set up your station you cook the food you perform it's intense you put it all on the table people eat they're happy they go home and they wake up and it's like it never happened it's almost like comparing broadway or theater to a movie where like being in the theater seeing a live performance is such a singular experience but then when it's done, it's done and that's it. And creating an album or a movie is a lot more similar to like making books or writing recipes where there's a longevity to it. The consumer, the viewer, the reader can sit with it and like learn from it. Or I don't know, it feels like a more lasting experience and potentially a lot more impactful. And I kind of entered the phase in my life where like I was really interested in teaching more than I was in performing. And so the idea that I could parlay my love of writing, which if you asked me when I was eleven what I wanted to do when I grew up, I would say I wanted to be a writer. But it never occurred to me to pursue that professionally because it seemed like such a far away goal. Like, what would I write about? Like, is a writer even a real job? <laughs> and, you know, so I was, okay, like let's figure out a way where I can still cook, but also like maybe continue learning about something else that isn't just cooking food. Because working in a restaurant, you get into this rhythm and you kind of get bored. You sort of exhaust what you're able to like learn in that environment. So, yeah, I mean, food media as a phrase didn't really exist. It wasn't born yet. Instagram did not exist. The internet was just becoming a thing. When I started at the magazine at Bon Appetit, you know, it was like you worked on the website or you worked at the magazine. And everyone who worked at the magazine thought the people who worked on the website were to be honest, like a little inferior. It was like, oh, well, that's just for the website. And the way that we treated the magazine was so different. It didn't even occur to us that there was a world in which things that happened on the internet would be as important as what happened in like a real life magazine with physical pages.
1: And now it's arguably more important.
0: Arguably. <laughs> well, they're just, they're one and the same. They're different. And it's almost like now a magazine
1: is a collector's item. We'll have more of this conversation with Chef Allison Roman after this break. So, you wrote two cookbooks, right? Yeah. Dining In and Nothing Fancy. I have to tell you this. Two weekends ago, my friend came over and she was like, I just want a cookie. I opened up Nothing Fancy and it was like salty chocolatey chocolate chip cookies <laughs> I was like mm, this is interesting we like tried the raw batter don't do that everyone because it has eggs in it and then we made it and we baked it and it was the greatest thing i have ever tasted in my entire life and i hate sweets allison it was so good
0: <laughs> thank you well that is a huge compliment and i i love to like transform a skeptic too you know like you weren't sold immediately but once you made it you you still trusted that
1: it would be good I mean, your recipes are really simple, but they yield impressive results. What's your process for developing your recipes, Allison? I love the word simple. I think that it really is
0: a great distillation of the food that I try to make because having worked in restaurants, having worked for magazines, like I feel like I have a good understanding of all the ways to do the thing, right? Like there's a million ways to roast a chicken. There are hundreds of thousands of cookie recipes. There are, you know, 20,000 you know, recipes for a lasagna, like, I think I've seen a lot. And I feel like I ask myself, what am I willing to do? (laughs) Because I'm also like, kind of a I'm like, a, obviously, like, I love food, I do it for a living, I have for so long, I can't imagine doing anything else. But I'm also at the end of the day, like tired. And I'm also like trying to do other stuff. And I also don't want to spend all my time cleaning up. And I don't want to like wait four hours for something or seven days or what, like, I don't know, like, I feel like I'm in the position of most home cooks where it's like I want something really delicious and I want it sooner rather than later. And I don't want to spend that much time or effort on it unless it's really worth it. And if it's really worth it, I'm going to tell you why and how. But I think that the best food isn't the most complicated food. And just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. And just because if you go the extra distance and like make it that much more complicated, are you going to have that much more enjoyment? And I think you have to ask yourself that when developing a recipe.
1: Yeah, I mean, the intersection of that philosophy with the COVID-19 pandemic, I think is what helped catapult you into fame. I mean, I was depressed in the early part of the pandemic. And I would say to myself some days, let me cook so I do not cry today. Uh, And, you know, it gave me so much joy. And I think the same thing happened for so many other people um, and all at the same time. So I'm wondering what it was like for you to see your fame rise so quickly, or to me, it looked quick, but maybe it wasn't quick for you.
0: Yeah, I guess it it didn't feel quick to me. It felt like reached a place where people that weren't cooking knew who I was. And that was interesting because to your point, the pandemic really forced people to stay inside. And I had a lot of people being like, I've never done this before in my life. And I just cooked one of your recipes and I'm so excited and proud of myself. And I think that that was huge for me because normally when your audience is people who are like you, you know, it's like people that are cooking, people that are into food, you have to work hard to stand out in that field and to like, you know, sort of set yourself apart. But I think to break through to people that aren't actually that interested in food or cooking to begin with, I felt very accomplished. And I felt like really proud of myself. And I don't know that it would have happened without the pandemic. (laughs) I don't think I'm that great. I think that, you know, for people being forced to stay inside and look in their pantries to see what they had, I felt lucky that I had such a robust repertoire of recipes that largely depended on pantry staples. So sort of like right place, right time, except it was the horrible place and the horrible time. (laughs) Um,
1: But yeah, I mean, it didn't feel like all at once. It did feel like a lot all at once, but also not. I mean, I will say something that made you stick out. You have this cool girl persona, and I think you're also younger in age. You talk like a lot of people who are like in their 20s and 30s talk, and you present food in a way that is very relatable, as opposed to like, find this one cream in this one shop in Brooklyn. You're just like, just go to Trader Joe's. Maybe you have to go to Giant. It'll be there. How do you feel, though, about people perceiving you as a cool girl? Um, I think if people
0: knew me, they would probably not think I was that cool. <laughs> like I'm, yeah. Like I, I feel like also cool girl has such like a connotation, and I think of other people as cool girls, and would never put myself in that bucket. I think that there's a confidence that I have from doing what I've been doing for so long, where like when I say you don't have to use the nicest butter. You can use whatever you want. I'm not saying that from like a cool girl place. I'm saying that because I've tested this recipe with expensive butter and I'm just telling you it doesn't matter. Or if I'm like, you really need to own this tool, I'm telling you because I've tried to do it without that tool. Like I think I'm coming from a place of experience and I think it's because I've been, I've, I'm i old. <laughs> I've like been doing it for so long and I think that maybe that confidence sort of has interpreted its way into cool girl. But I- I honestly think if you knew me or like spent time with me, I think that you would find that I'm also deeply insecure and riddled with anxiety and like, don't know how to dress myself and feel shy and intimidated by people that I do think are cool. Like it's, it's a spectrum. And I think that we present to the internet what we want people to see. Right. And it's such a sliver of reality. And I am like truly shocked that I would be described in that way.
1: But if you look at like what I wear and like how I behave, it's like, I don't know. I don't think it's that cool. (laughs) So, Allison, in May of 2020, you gave an interview in a newsletter about growing your own brand. Uh, In the interview, you made comments about Chrissy Teigen and Marie Kondo saying that they had capitalized on their fame and had sort of sold themselves out. This interview got a lot of attention and you kind of got canceled or did you get canceled? Can you talk a little bit more about that? You know,
0: I don't, I don't, I still don't even know how to talk about this, to be honest. Um, I think it's such a, (laughs) I honestly don't even know where to start. I really don't. Um, I don't know. I, I think that like the term cancellation is really interesting and it's in the eye of the, it's not up to me whether I am or not, I guess is my answer.
1: I can tell that you've been going through a lot since March 2020, that I can tell that you are still like walking this path. And it's a path that I don't know that a lot of people have ever or will ever walk. What do you think you've learned from this whole experience about like yourself and your career? I sort of disagree
0: with the idea that just because I'm able to produce my own content or whatever, like paying out of pocket for that because I believe in what I do for my work is like an indication that somehow I wasn't or that I'm not because I still, ha- there's still like fallout every day. It's, it's like a thing that I still live with every day. I still think about it every day. I still I don't want like my resilience to be interpreted as like somehow something not being real because I think it's very much real. I lost jobs. I lost a lot of stuff, like, as a result of that. Like, there were different consequences, for sure. Mm. Um, it wasn't like, oh, nothing happened. Like, a lot of stuff happened. It's still really raw and really sensitive. And I want to be really, like, thoughtful about how I talk about it. For me, my career sort of felt like a, a lobster being boiled from cold water. Like, when you put a lobster in a pot of cold water and then you turn the heat up, It dies but it doesn't know that it's dying. It just dies. But if you drop a lobster in a pot of boiling water, it screams. So I felt like a bit like the lobster who was put in a pot of cold water and it, the heat was just sort of turned up gradually. And I didn't really understand. I didn't really understand where I was until I was there, if that makes sense. And so I think just like my situation was, is you know, there's a lot more suffering out there in the world than what I experienced. Um, I don't think we as a society have enough perspective on that sort of phenomenon to really speak on it intelligently. I can only speak to my personal experience, but I think that professionally it didn't, the The impact it had is I really had to like examine who I was and what the voice was that I wanted to put out there because I wasn't working for anyone else. And so I had no line of defense. I had no, you know, prestige publication to fall back on. I had no team of people to like, do anything with me or for me. And it was like, okay, well, this is it. You're going to do well or you're not. And if you don't, it's your fault. And if you do, it's also your fault If in a good way. You know, I think that it's arguably tougher, but also really rewarding. And I'm so grateful for the experience that I've had that led me to this place where I'm able to work for myself. It's really tough to just kind of make it and I believe like the best perspective is the long game for sure. I think that anybody that claims to like have learned something in the short period of time, like isn't really learning. And I think that the part of the human experience is like learning forever and growing forever and being open forever. And I, I hope that this pandemic experience like raises us To a level of awareness where we're able to get angry, but we're able to get like angry in a thoughtful way where we're open to discussion and like kind of also showing empathy towards people because there's, again, like a lot to be upset about right now. (laughs) And just making it through the day is like (laughs) can be can be tough. And so I'm like, I don't know, sometimes I wonder if I'm just hiding behind pantry ingredients. I'm like, the world is terrible, but make this bean stew.
1: You know, you talked earlier about how growing up in LA and and in California, like you were just exposed to so many different like cuisines and cultures. And like, I feel like every time I cook something of yours, I can see that. But you know, I've heard the critique and I don't think it's necessarily just you, but a lot of times people who are like non-Western or like not white. They feel as though sometimes um, a Western and or white chef cooks their cuisine. They kind of get more praise or acknowledgement for wider audiences dabbling in that cuisine. What do you like make of that critique? Like, do you think that's a legitimate critique? Do you think chefs who do this owe anything to the um, cultures who inspire their cooking?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's can certainly be the case. And that's something that like I try to very hard to listen to people about. I've had some really thoughtful and wonderful conversations around that very topic with just like random people in the DMs and, you know, emailing back and forth with people. And I think that the increased awareness and sensitivity around that is something that everybody should be paying attention to. I hear a lot on both ends of the spectrum from like kindness and awareness to like like, the less pleasant versions of those. And I think that one of the stories that I heard that I feel like affected me the most was somebody telling me that like, it's painful for me as a brown woman to watch a white woman become famous or successful for something that I got made fun of for cooking or eating when I was a kid. I feel that. I, I cannot relate to that specifically. And But I feel for that person. That is a honest and vulnerable comment. And that I'm sure it's really painful. And I don't, I want to do my best that that doesn't happen for people. And I'm not always going to nail it. And sometimes I might do something that triggers people or it feels bad or wrong. But I think that some of the conversations I've had have been so wonderfully eye-opening and like beautiful and honest. And people are like so ready to talk about it. People are ready to talk about their pain and their trauma and like how food is tied to that. And I think that for so long we weren't, that we're in a very intense period of learning, generally speaking, because these are conversations we were not having even two years ago. And I think that the fact that people feel empowered to share those stories is really special and important. And I think it's gonna be like result in something for the greater good.
1: Allison, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to me.
0: Erin, thank you so much for having me. You're a delight. This was wonderful. That's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. We're going to take the rest of the week off, so make sure to catch up on our previous episodes, por favor. Enjoy your turkey. I'm going to stay with the ham. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, and Melissa Kaplan. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Shawnee Hilton and Lauren Rabb, and our theme music is by Andrew Eapin. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us to put your I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back next week with all the news in Desmadre. Gracias and gobble gobble.